We're in the book of Proverbs, and uh, we took last week off because of Vacation Bible School, which, by the way, was um, a roaring success, and I appreciate your, your prayers and your, your support there. Book of Proverbs, we're looking at the first nine chapters. I'm going to fudge a little bit on this series because um, chapter 7 is very parallel, very similar in its teachings, the collection of sayings in chapter 7 is very much parallel to what we're going to look at tonight in chapter 5. So I'm going to teach chapter 5 tonight, and then I'm just going to footnote you over to chapter 7, and I'm going to let you read chapter 7 on your own. They're, they're consistent. In fact, it, it would fit real well if, if 5 and 7 were, were actually side by side. So then the next three weeks, we'll look at chapter 6 next week. Then we'll look at chapters 8 and 9 on the last two Wednesday nights. Then we'll have a bit of a summer break in August before we uh, start back in, in, with our fall scheduling on August the 24th. So that's our Wednesday schedule. And, uh, and just to let you see how I'm going to handle uh, the next few weeks of Proverbs, we're we're essentially halfway through this series, and so tonight I want to look at, at chapter 5. Uh, some of you will remember uh, a, a fellow that actually was born and raised in Tulsa and graduated from Central High School back in the day when Central High School was in downtown. Uh, his name was Paul Harvey. Uh, the rest of the story, Paul Harvey commentary, you know, for years he was a guy um, like a, almost like a, a modern version of Will Rogers, just sort of um, looked at the world in a common sense kind of way and just uh, helped frame things so that we knew how to think about it. In a commentary that he did years ago, he told the story in, in ways that only Paul Harvey could tell a story. He talked about a letter that he got from a 28-year-old mother in Billings, Montana, who had a five-year-old daughter. They were watching together a 1930s movie with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, a very young Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And the movie ended with a romantic kiss and an embrace. Fade to black, credits begin to roll. The five-year-old looked up and said, Mommy, your movies end where our movies start. Out of the mouths of babes. We live in a culture that it is not unfair to say is nothing short of obsessed with sexuality. It has created... Um, it's been framed in terms of a sexual revolution, but, but what we've seen is the, the revolution of, of what started in the 60s as free love has begun to cannibalize the very culture that produced it. Uh, free love became open marriage, became no-fault divorce, which has now become same-gender marriage and the whole plethora of, of depravity that has flowed out of it all. Proverbs is a book about wisdom, about truth 
applied in practical ways so that we live life in a way that best works. We've seen already in the, in the early chapters of, of Proverbs mostly these encouragements related to wisdom, but over the next couple of weeks we're going to see um, some more specific areas that, that, the, that the, the writer of Proverbs wants us to apply wisdom to. And chapter 5, and in a parallel way, chapter 7, have to do with this question that I've called seduction versus marriage. You see on the outline that I've given you, uh, the first section, the dangers of adultery. I mean, it's interesting, we live today in a, a, a time when even the word adultery is, um, is really not spoken. It's not, it's not a thing anymore. Uh, we used to call it adultery, we called it infidelity, uh, we called it cheating. Now it, um, it's an affair. It's an enlivenment. There's an author by the name of Alan Peterson who wrote a book called The Myth of the Greener Grass. And he says this about this issue of, of adultery. He says, a call to fidelity is like a solitary voice crying in today's sexual wilderness. What was once labeled adultery and carried a stigma of guilt and embarrassment is now an affair. A nice-sounding, almost inviting word wrapped in mystery, fascination, and excitement. A relationship, not a sin. What was once behind the scenes, a, secretly close, a secret closely guarded is now in the headlines, a TV theme, a bestseller, as common as the cold. Marriages are open and divorces are creative. Well, the, psalm, the, the, the writer of Proverbs has some things to say about this. And so he's going to talk in chapter 5 about the dangers of adultery. And he does something that our culture is very skilled at not doing, which is looking at something and giving a wide-eyed, honest assessment to break through the illusions, the uh, enticements of sexual temptation to talk about the downside, the dark side. That's what we have in chapter 5 and also in chapter 7. The first, uh, first 14 verses. My son, this is like what we've seen in other chapters. It's, it's framed as parental advice. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips may comply with knowledge. Now, that's just an introduction uh, to this chapter. But it's framed in, in terms, as I said, of, of parental wisdom, of one generation passing on to the other. But he says, pay attention to wisdom, incline your ear to understanding. Remember our words. Let me just review the three major words in this book. Um, uh, knowledge, that, that, those are the facts of a situation. When we grasp the facts, we have knowledge. But when we have a spiritual framework that allows us to put the facts in an order that makes sense of them, then we have understanding. 
once we've taken the facts of knowledge and we've framed them in a way that they make sense according to uh, what's true, that understanding then produces wisdom, which is the practical, the ethical way that we then live our life based on the facts that we know and the understanding. Now, we live in a generation that typically does not display wisdom. Why? Do we not have the facts? No. If anything, we're assaulted by facts. We have plenty of facts. We just don't have any understanding. And you can't get, to, you can't get from knowledge or facts to wisdom without understanding. And that is inherently a spiritual endeavor. The book of Proverbs is written to the person who is trying to make sense of the world around them from the framework of the nature and the character of God by which all things are measured. Things are good when they align with the way God set creation in motion. Things are bad when they are out of alignment with the way God intended things to be. One of the one of the most prominent questions in any crisis situation that I, I, I hear all the time, why did God let this happen? And you have to pick and choose the time to answer that question because in the middle of a crisis, it's not the time to have a, a whole theological debate. But, but when, that, when that time arrives, here's the answer to that question. Why did God let this terrible thing happen? The fact of the matter is, God created the world to operate correctly. Man chose a different path. When bad things happen, it's not God somehow being vengeful or even God being negligent. It is the world that we have chosen, but we blame God so that we don't have to take responsibility for it. Why did God let this happen? You know, do you, when your car stops working and you take it to the shop, you probably don't start, when he says what's wrong, you probably don't start with, I don't know, the engineer that designed it Clearly didn't know what he was doing. No, the engineer that designed the car designed it to operate a certain way. But something has now stepped into the process and it has interfered with the operation so the car doesn't function the way it was designed, the way it was created. Much like the world that no longer operates as it was designed to operate, it doesn't function as it was created to operate. But here's the good news of the gospel. Not only are we going to be transformed, but the creation is going to be transformed. One of these days, we're going to work. We're going to labor without the curse of sin, which does what? Produces frustration in our labor. Produces opposition to our hard work. One of these days, we're going to live to see the world the way it was meant to operate. We're going to drive this car, and it is going to be the smooth ride that it was designed to be. 
Until then, we have to have wisdom to know how to make sense of the facts of the way things are so that we can live a life that is uh, as close as possible to the design that God not only built into creation, but the design that he built into us. Incline your ear to my understanding so that you may maintain discretion and your lips may comply with knowledge. In other words, your mind and your, and your speech will be consistent with this truth that I'm handing you. Okay, uh, that's introduction. Here we go with, with the instruction. Verse 3, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, but she does not know it. Let's talk about this. He sets the stage by, uh, he's going to talk about sexual immorality, but he begins with a specific example of the temptation of a prostitute. Someone who intentionally is trying to seduce a young man off of the main path of his life onto a side street where, uh, where, she can, uh, where she can, in effect, steal his very life from him. Look at the, 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 the description here. Uh, she speaks, or her, her lips drip with honey and her speech is smoother than oil. That means it's a poetic way of saying that her presentation is actually appealing. It's filled with promise. It's filled with uh, excitement. It's filled with fascination. It's filled with imagination. She plays to the imagination of our sinful nature, and she suggests things that we think will be the greatest thing ever. But, verse 4, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, what's fascinating about this is you have to understand the way, the way pro not prophecy, the way poetry works in, in the Hebrew language. Um, it, Hebrew poetry is all about contrasts and play on words, the use of language. Uh, I, want you to, I want you to see this. Um, the lips of an adulteress drip honey. That suggests almost uh, uh, the taste of a kiss, sweet as honey. And yet the parallel is in verse 4, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood. Wormwood was a, 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 a bitter... Uh, uh, horrible taste. So the promise is, is the sweetness of honey, but, but the reality is the regret of, of bitterness. Well, then the last part of each of those verses parallel as well, but this is what I want you to see. Uh, her speech is smoother than oil. In, 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 in other words, her, her, her verbal presentation is, uh, is slick. It's, it's smooth. But here's the parallel, sharp as a two-edged sword. The reason that's a parallel, in, in ancient Hebrew, um, it's translated here sharp as a two-edged sword, but we lose the poetry in the translation. Because what the phrase actually means in Hebrew, in Hebrew, uh, swords, uh, 
had a, 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 a sharpened edge on both sides, a two-edged sword. You understand what that is. Uh, but th- those edges of a, of a sword were referred to as mouths. So literally, uh, a sword has two mouths. And those mouths, and this is the language that Hebrew uses, in battle, those mouths eat the enemy. So he's using this parallel because uh, what comes out of her mouth uh, appears to be enticing and inviting and exciting. But it's really like the mouth of a sword that eats whatever it touches, slices through, destroys whatever it touches. We lose that poetry in the English translation, but, but I love the way these verses are built uh, because it's designed to not only be picturesque, but it's designed to be incredibly memorable um, as, as a, a means of transferring advice. Uh, verse 5 and 6 have the same kind of parallel. Verse 5 says, uh, her feet go down to death. The first part of verse 6 is, she does not ponder the path of life. That is, uh, death, well, let's read the second lines. Verse six, verse 6, her ways are, uh, verse 5, her steps take hold of Sheol. Verse 6, her ways are unstable and she does not know it. In other words, verse 5 says that death and the grave mark the road that the prostitute travels. Verse 6 says she is headed uh, to a destination that she doesn't even think about. She doesn't ponder what's at the end of the road that she's on. In fact, the instability of the life that she offers, she herself doesn't even know what's going to happen. She's unaware of her own destiny, much less the destiny of those that she pulls into her temptation. This is the very opposite of wisdom. To live daily with no thought of what the end of this road is, with no consideration of how my choices for the day, my actions for the week will play out in tangible results. Don't we live in a generation today that gives no consideration to how things will end, we call it the slippery slope. But the reason the slippery slope is so effective in capturing people, in capturing an entire culture, is because we, we, we make this decision. And we say, this isn't going to affect you. It's just, it's just this one thing. But it's because as a culture, we don't have, we, we can't, we don't have the understanding to deal with facts. So we have no way to apply wisdom to say, hey, wait a minute, this thing will lead to this, which inevitably leads to this, which will lead to this. We are, as a culture, this woman offering sexual freedom, offering no, uh, no harm, no foul approach Uh, to physical intimacy, we've never even pondered the path of life. We're unstable as a culture, and we don't even know it. It's the opposite of wisdom. Well, in verses 7 through 14, 
he's going to give us vivid detail of the agonizing grief that comes on a person who yields to lust. Starts in, in, verse, in verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Again, another, every time we see that parental reference, it's, it's a, a start of a, a new paragraph. It's a, it's a new lesson that's about to be taught. In verse 8, he says, keep your way far from her. He's still talking about this woman, this, uh, and whether it's an actual woman that, that they could walk down the street and, and the father instructing the son could point her out, or whether it's just a, uh, an image, a, a type, uh, there's no way to know this. But, but the son certainly would have, uh, would have understood what he was talking about. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. This adulteress, this prostitute from the earlier verses, he's saying, listen, stay away from her part of town. Here's the thing. It is dangerously presumptuous for us to put ourselves in the proximity of temptation and then plead with God to protect us from it. It's not okay to cruise the parts of town where sin is open and flaunted and then say, Lord, protect my eyes from that. If pornography leads your eyes to sin, then the answer is not to, uh, to try and sin as little as possible. The, you know, when Joseph was, what was, was in, in the book of Genesis, when Joseph was serving in the house of Potiphar, and the master's wife continually flirts until one day she actually makes a proposal. She makes a pass at Joseph. Joseph says, no, I, I can't do that. Uh, you belong to the master. That's not me. And she presses it. And what does he do? He runs away. He literally flees. The New Testament says that explicitly. Flee from immorality. It doesn't say, hang around and practice your willpower. But we think that's what it means. Well, I'm strong enough. You know, listen, if you, if you view things on your telephone, on your phone, your smartphone, uh, that you shouldn't view, then you need to get some sort of accountability for your phone usage. Quit telling yourself. Because, see, that voice in your head that says, you can handle this, you can stop anytime you want to. Listen, that's the liar who knows he's just tightening the noose. The idea here, he says, if you don't want to be tempted by the prostitute, don't go to her part of town. You don't want to be tempted by pornography. Go out of your way to establish boundaries so that if, if a look leads to sin, don't get close enough to look. Verse 9. Otherwise, meaning if you choose to just rely on your own willpower, otherwise 
You will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned possessions will go to the house of a foreigner. Interesting. In verse 9, it says you will give your vigor to others, meaning uh, your best strength in life. In other words, you're expending your God-given physical strength on useless activities. It's the opposite, again, the opposite of wisdom. You're going to not only give away your vigor, but your years to the cruel one. In other words, he's talking about, um, he's talking about your enthusiasm for life. It's not just physical vigor. The word, the word means it's broader than that. It means not just your energy to, to live and, and to function physically, but in a sense, your energy to live life. What we don't tell ourselves, that the Bible tells us very clearly, is that sin sucks the life right out of us. It always promises more and delivers less. That's the nature of temptation. But as we invest our energy, as we invest our time, as we invest the enthusiasm of life, what, what ends up with is, is we lose all of those things. You know, I, I think it's a, isn't it an old um, Clint Eastwood movie somewhere with the line, um, it's not the years, it's the mileage. You know, um, we talk about, we, we use horse terms sometimes, we say, man, uh, that guy looks like he was rode hard and put up wet. Well, that's what a life of sin does to you. It doesn't give you life. It sucks life out of you. And that's what's being suggested here. To give in to these temptations is to give your vigor, your enthusiasm for life to other people, and your years to the cruel one. In a sense, uh, to waste your years. Verse 10, and strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned possessions will go to the house of a foreigner. In other words, to pursue this life of, uh, of, of lust, of sexual immorality, is to not only lose your self-respect, it's not only to lose your physical vigor, it's not only to lose your, uh, your enthusiasm for life, but frankly, it's to lose your, your, your money. Sin is much more expensive than you realize up front. And because sin becomes habitual, that money just keeps following the sin. He's using the imagery here of sexual immorality, in particular prostitute, but the principles here apply to anything that, 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 that we commit to that steals our, uh, our livelihood, takes away what God has given us that was, that was intended for things so much better. Verse 11, he says, And you will groan in the end when your flesh and your body are consumed. Now this is an interesting verse. I spent some time here. Poetically, it might mean simply, um, uh, simply uh, your life comes to a, a sad ending. You look back and, and it, it just doesn't have what you, what you hoped it would have. It might, however, actually be related uh, to disease. 
suggesting that in, in one way or another, uh, sexual immorality often can produce actual uh, diseases that, uh, that destroy the body. You can actually uh, physically damage yourself with this lifestyle of, of unrestrained pursuit of gratification. Now, verse 12 and 13 is, is really kind of the, the summary here. Um, he, and you say, how I hated instruction. Now, this is at the end of your life. He's, he's telling what the end of a life that is lived in pursuit of this kind of sexual gratification. In the end of your life, how I hated instruction. And my heart disdainfully rejected rebuke. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, nor incline my ear to my instructors. I was almost in total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. You know what these verses are? These are deathbed regrets. This is, think about, think about the final words that we have from the Apostle Paul. The last letter from Paul that we have in the New Testament is the book of 2 Timothy. And chapter 4 is really Paul's swan song. He's writing to Timothy with little expectation that, he'll, that, that he may be able to see him. He says, I've run the race. I've, 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 fought, the, I've fought the fight. I've, 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 completed, I've completed the course that's in front of me. Even now I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Means uh, that, that what was left of his life is now being exhausted. He's being used up. And yet, there's no regret in Paul's life. I mean, Paul is writing this letter from, from death row somewhere in the city of Rome, maybe even the very cell that I got to see in, in 2019 when, when, when we traveled to Rome, uh, uh, where death row prisoners were kept, maybe the very cell that I was in may have been where Paul wrote those words. The world says, Paul, you're, <laughs> you're arrested. You're in, you're in a dungeon. You're headed for execution. You honestly don't have any regrets. No. Why? Because he had given his life to something that gave him life. The ability of the world to try and take his physical life was no threat in, as a trade-off to the life that he had received. This is the opposite. This is the cry of, of a person on that same deathbed, but looking back saying, I didn't listen when my teachers told me. I had the facts, but I didn't listen so I could gain understanding. And without understanding, I never lived by wisdom. And so my life was a waste. It didn't produce anything worthwhile. I was almost in total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. What does that mean? It means he not only had these regrets that haunted him, but he dies as a man who is socially ashamed of himself. That is, he not only was a failure as an individual, but he sees at the close of his life that he was even a failure as a contributing part of the people that God had assigned him to for his life. 
He wasn't a productive citizen. His life, to put it in a, in a modern term, his death didn't leave an opening because there was no positive influence. Why? Because somewhere he saw a prostitute and her lips dripped like honey and her promises were inviting and enticing. And he looked at that set of facts, but he never had the understanding to evaluate them or make sense of them. So he didn't have the wisdom to respond to them. And what he got was a life lived in pursuit of his own gratification. Now, where does this all come from? Well, let me, let me take you to, uh, to something very interesting. We know these chapters, these early chapters were, were compiled by Solomon. Go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, this is the, the wisest man in the world. This is the son of the greatest king in the history of Israel, before or after. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations of which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. They will certainly turn your heart away to follow their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. For Solomon became a follower of Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and of Milcom, the abhorrent idol of the Ammonites. Have you read these verses before? Did you know that this is how Solomon's life ended? He was a pagan king worshiping false gods. Solomon! Why? Because he went after the wrong woman. Women. Verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, on the mountain that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abhorrent idol of the sons of Ammon. He also did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him regarding this thing that he was not to follow other gods, but he did not comply with what the Lord had commanded. This if we go to the book of Ecclesiastes, we find the old Solomon who is now evaluating things. And he, in his list of things that he used to seek for fulfillment, he tells us, I, I spent a while chasing pleasure. It's Hebrew code for sexual gratification. I did that. Every woman that appealed to me, I, I used my kingly authority and brought her into my harem. I, I had them all only to get to the end of my life and realize that there was nothing there. 
My chest was hollow. I had been hollowed out as a man because I had spent my vigor in all the wrong places. We are told that I've actually read arguments that adultery is by any other name it's it's usually called other things open marriage or whatever our psychologists tell us that it's helpful it it creates uh, a charge a, a little bit of uh, a thrill that keeps your marriage fresh here's my question how arrogant have we become that we think we know more about how to do sex than the Creator? He says that's not the right path. And we say, oh, sure it is. Well, when we do that, we go right back to verse 6. We do not ponder the path of life, and our ways are unstable, and we don't even know it well that'd be a horrible place to stop this lesson so let's look at the joys of marriage verse 15 in verse 15 he says drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well should your springs overflow into the street streams of water in the public squares let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Like a loving doe and a graceful mountain goat, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the breasts of a foreigner? Marital love is intended to be a nurturing, refreshing experience. That's why he uses the image here of a cistern and a well. The, the text, it's translated here, uh, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Uh, the text literally reads in Hebrew, drink waters from the cistern that is supplied by your own well. In other words, there's, you, you have a fountain he compares marital love to a fountain, and he says, you don't have to go somewhere else for that, for that cool water that, that you yearn for. It's provided right there. In other words, verse 15, uh, drink water from your own cistern. The lesson here is a drink from another well is not sweeter than your own water. Adultery is based on an illusion. It's based on a lie. One illusion says everybody does it. Except the writer of Proverbs said, says everybody doesn't do it. In fact, that's propaganda because statistics show that adultery, even though it is portrayed easily and attractively in movies and, 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 and culturally, the fact of the matter is, most marriages, even today, still have that as a taboo that they do not practice. Most marriages don't go in that direction, so everybody's not doing it. 
We say, well, but this person really cares for me. Well, verse 17 says, let the love that you have be yours alone, and it's not for strangers with you. You see, the way, the way sexuality works, uh, and, and not to be too explicit, but, but, but men are motivated visually, and women are motivated emotionally, which means men are tempted by what they see. That's why pornography, while it is, statistics tell us it's increasingly used by women, but it's still uh, overwhelmingly a male struggle because men are stimulated by what they see. Women are stimulated by what they feel. That's why affairs for married women are generally not with the handsome guy that that walked by that I, I couldn't resist. They're, they're with the guy at work that just listened and showed attention and fawned over them. Here's the thing. Man or woman, however it is that we are stimulated, that stimulation must be guardedly kept in check and reserved for the water from our own well. Men have to protect their eyes. They have to, they have to be serious about, you know, it, it's hard in our culture to not have the first look because that's not always in your control. But a spiritual discipline for men is to practice the discipline of refusing the second look. See, here's the thing. Temptation itself is not a sin. Now, if you go where the temptation is, where you put yourself in a position, that is an invitation to sin. But, but just in the general course of, of the day, temptation is not a sin. Martin Luther put it this way. Temptation is like a bird that flies over your head. It's not a sin to be tempted by sin. But when you let that bird nest in your hair, in other words, when you take the temptation and you nurture it mentally and you ponder it and you chew on it and you play it out in your mind how it, how it could unfold, well, buddy, you're already on a path that is not going to end well. And whether it's what men see or what women feel, the point is the same. Guard what you give to other people, your attention or your need for attention because it's designed for an intimacy in marriage. Hmm. It adds excitement. Well, verse 19 says, be exhilarated always with the love of, your, uh, of the wife of your youth. Marriage is designed to have excitement. If you need excitement in your marriage, that is something that you fix with husband and wife together. It's not something that you fix by going outside the home. Verse 16 is probably the most important verse in this section. Should your springs overflow into the streets, streams of water in the public square. This is the image of somebody who is taking the water from their cistern and pouring it out in the streets. In other words, taking that precious 
personal possession and just throwing it out. In a, in a part of the world where water was a scarce and precious commodity already, this is an incredibly poetic uh, way of talking about the utter pointlessness of extramarital sexual activity. It's like taking something precious like water in the desert and just pouring it out in the streets. For us, it's everywhere. It's in advertising and movies and television. It makes faithfulness seem old-fashioned and embarrassing. Chuck Swindoll actually tells a story of, um, uh, uh, of a woman that um, was in a class, uh, a classroom setting. I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, she was in a classroom setting, and the question was, how many of you have been uh, unfaithful in your marriage? And only one woman refused to raise her hand. Everybody else raised her hand. And she was telling her husband about this when she got home. And, and he said, you were the one that didn't raise your hand. And she said, no, actually, I raised my hand. And he said, you raised your hand? And she said, no, 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 I've never been unfaithful to you. Well, why did you raise your hand? Well, because I was embarrassed. Folks, that's like being embarrassed that you're healthy in the middle of an epidemic. It, it, but that's what, that's what our culture has done. To say I'm not sexually adventuresome outside the boundaries of my, of my marriage vows, our culture goes, what is wrong with you? I can't tell you how many young couples that, that I've had to counsel uh, in premarital counseling who talk about the, the pressure uh, uh, in the dating world. I mean, there are, you may not know this. There are actually rules nowadays. You're, uh, you're not supposed to have sex until the third date. Anything before that is just, is just embarrassing. Really? That's where the line is? You only have to buy two meals and then you get, I mean, this is where, this is where our culture is. That, those are the unspoken rules. Some of us have been married a long time. We don't know what those rules are for dating anymore. But let me tell you, sex is treated in our culture as nothing more than like going putt-putt. It's just a normal dating activity. Is it any wonder why we've produced a nation of people that have facts but no understanding that can make sense of them? which means they, they, by definition, have no wisdom to know how to live their lives. How do we recover? Well, we have to be a people of wisdom, and we have to have influence with our children and our grandchildren, much like this council, uh, handing wisdom from generation to generation. Marriage is, uh, is meant to be joyful. Look at verse 20. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the breasts of a foreigner? He says, th this is a great way to end this section because basically he says, you need to examine the temptation. Ask this question of every temptation, not just sexual temptation, of every temptation. Ask this question. Why would I do this? Because the answers are all too obvious. In verse 20, he says, why would you be exhilarated with an adulteress? Now, that's the translation, exhilarated. The word means, why would you be taken captive? The idea here is that you, uh, 
don't examine the temptation, and so you are too easily uh, captured and swept away by it. The Bible has a low opinion of people who only live for the moment. We were not created for the moment. We were created for eternity. That's a question a wise person asks about every temptation. Why would I do this? If there's not an answer to any decision that says... This will honor God. This will advance the kingdom. This will strengthen my walk with Jesus. If it's any other answer, if it's self-gratification, if it's uh, chasing after adventure, it's an important question. Why would I do this? By not asking the question, we set ourselves up to charge full speed into a temptation only then to look back with regret. It looked and tasted like honey up front, but it was bitter wormwood at the end. It was a double-edged sword that came for us. Well, the eyes of God. Verses 21 through 23 finish out this chapter. For the ways of everyone are before the eyes of the Lord, and he observes all his paths. His own wrongdoings will trap the wicked, and he will be held by the ropes of his sin. He will die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his foolishness, he will go astray. Verse 21 is a reminder that God is all-seeing, all-knowing, even of life's hidden sins. Now, here's the thing about God. We have two wrong ideas about God in our culture. They're both equally um, theologically incorrect. One is that God is a judge who is just waiting to catch you in a mistake so that he can throw a lightning bolt and strike you down. That is not the God of the Bible. He is not a judge waiting to catch you in something, lurking around the corner so that he can trip you up when you, when you fall. But there is an opposite error. He is also not a doddering old man that we can put something over on. And too many times when it comes to sin, we think not only will nobody know, but even God won't know. We can explain ourselves. We can justify our actions. Well, look at verse 22. I want... If there's one verse in this chapter to memorize, I would say it's verse 22, and I'm going to explain why. And I'll tell you why this verse is so memorable to me. In verse 22, his own wrongdoings, meaning the, the person who gives in to temptation, the person who actively chooses sin uh, rather than the way of wisdom, his own wrongdoings will trap the wicked, and he will be held by the ropes of his sin. Adultery is an enticement that leads to a trap that always snaps on us. There is a, a website, um, I won't call it by name, but it, it's a website where apparently you establish an account and it, it's basically a dating app for married people. 
And, and it's designed to facilitate uh, discrete connections of people who are married. Well, this has been a couple of years, but, but somebody hacked the database of the website and published the entire membership list. Now, granted, there were people out there who said, fine, whatever. I mean, you know, my wife already knows that I'm a philanderer. But what was stunning were the number of respectable Christian people who were utterly panicked because their names were on that list. Listen, I don't care how discreet you are. I don't care how careful you lay out your plans. I don't care how smart you think you are. This is always a sin that will find its way into the light. Every time. Every time. And this is why I think verse 22 is the verse I would memorize out of this chapter. Think about it this way. Let me, let me read it again, and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how I see it. His own wrongdoings will trap the wicked, and he will be held by the ropes of his sin. This verse for me, let's go over. Let me read, let me read this verse. Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You probably already know this verse. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Okay? We know that all things work together for good, uh, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, Proverbs 5:22. His own wrongdoings will trap the wicked, and he will be held by the ropes of his sin. Do you know what I see in Proverbs 5.22? Proverbs 5.22 is Romans 8.28 in reverse. God works out everything for good. He doesn't say that everything is good, but he works it out for the good for those who are walking with him. Back to Joseph. Joseph gets thrown in a well by his brothers, sold into slavery. He goes to Potiphar's house. He, he maintains his sexual integrity when he's tempted by Potiphar's wife, which only lands him in prison. But we know how the, the story ends. And in chapter 50, when his brothers come to him after their father dies, and they say, listen, we, we want to be right with you. Don't, don't punish us for what we did. And he says in Genesis chapter 50, listen, what you guys did, you meant for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, when we're walking with God, he takes even the bad stuff and he shapes it so that good comes out of it. But when we're not walking with God, when we're pursuing things that are the opposite of wisdom, it's the reverse that takes over. And now... You're trapped by the wicked, and you're held by the ropes of your own sin. Romans 8.28, in reverse. Well, the last verse, verse 23. 
He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his foolishness, or that word sometimes translated folly. In the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. Go astray has the idea of perishing from lack of self-control. I would put it this way. Uh, This this is the Gabbert translation. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I just know enough to, to sort of get by. But in, in the Gabbert translation, he will die for lack of instruction. Now, what's instruction? Instruction is not the facts. Instruction is the understanding. That's the process of, of gaining the ability to assess the facts. He will die for lack of instruction. He didn't have understanding. And here's my translation. And in the greatness of his folly, my, my translation says... He was made stupid by his own sin. Tattoo this on your thigh if you need to. A simple rule of thumb that you should always remember. Sin makes you stupid. Always. Always. It is the opposite of wisdom. If temptation approaches you see it for what it is ask why you should do it and whether or not it brings you closer to God and then take the facts apply understanding and then act in wisdom this chapter chapter 5 and you'll see if you get a chance to read chapter 7 These chapters should be taught regularly from the pulpits of this generation because this is a critical instruction uh, for our day and time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've given us here in in Proverbs. Thank you for... um, for the brilliance, frankly, of, uh, of, of what's here, what's been preserved for us. Father, give us the sense to be teachable, to become people who gain understanding and live by wisdom, not, as Paul put it, hearers of the word only and not doers. So that's James. But, Father, help us to be hearers who are also doers, And Lord, may we be marked in our actions as a people who live by wisdom so that when we come to the end of our days, rather than regret, we look back and we say we have completed the assignment that was given to us by the God who made us ambassadors of reconciliation in his name. Father, we pray that you find that here among the people who are called Evergreen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.